Tom Watson Sr. founded IBM and guided Big Blue for over 40 years. One of his most impressive moments in leadership occurred when a junior executive lost an enormous amount of money, in fact it was $10 million, on a risky venture for the company. Uh, Watson called the man into his office, how would you like to have been him? And uh, he entered and he nervously blurted out, I guess you want my resignation. Watson replied, you can't be serious. We've just spent $10 million educating you. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus was tempted to think the same about his disciples uh, before he ascended into heaven after the resurrection. You know, much of the emphasis of his ministry seems to have been to prepare these men who were going to lead the church after he was gone. And from a human perspective, they just made some colossal blunders. You know, Jesus often in the Gospels criticizes their lack of faith. But he had invested three years into their lives to prepare them for the task before them. I think one of the fascinating things in the Gospels is to look and see the different ways that Jesus taught people. Uh, it's his teaching methods that come to bear there. And it's particularly interesting in relation to the disciples. Uh, we see Jesus using the lecture where he's teaching on the kingdom and kingdom principles. He's talking about his father. He's talking about life. He's talking about himself. Uh, he's talking about important things to these people. He also uses the laboratory, the working out into life lessons of the things that he's teaching them. And then he uses the dreaded pop quiz, the test, to see if they're really getting it. And I want this morning for us to see all three methods at work uh, in, in the lives of, of the disciples. You know, many of the teaching moments of Jesus occur in conjunction with miracles, miracles that Jesus performed. Every miracle was performed because there was a need, and Jesus addressed that need. Now, the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle, is the only one, apart from the resurrection, that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's an incident that follows that about a boat incident. That story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. So this morning I'm going to sort of put the Gospels together so we can get kind of a composite look at what is going on for us to see what Jesus is doing. Before we jump in, though, there are two events that precede the feeding of the multitude that have a significant impact on the disciples. The first is that Jesus sent them out on a missionary venture. He gave them power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And he instructed them to preach the presence of the kingdom. It must have produced an incredible spiritual high in their lives. And firsthand they experienced the power of God in and through them in ministry. The second event was a sobering one. It's the martyrdom of John the baptizer. Now, Luke dealt with the details of the story earlier in the gospel because it fit the way that he was writing. But here in chapter 9, where we're going to go today, he simply alludes to the fact of it happening. And John's death must have had some kind of sobering impact on these disciples. You know, it, it showed them the dangerous consequences of a public faith. 
you know, maybe it put a damper on this new enthusiasm that they had in their evangelistic outreach. But let's go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. If you're grabbing a Bible in front of you there, page 1102, Luke chapter 9. And the first thing we're going to see Jesus employing is the lecture. Um, and he is teaching along, and then we come to verse 10. And it says this in Luke 9, 10, On their return, the apostle told him all that had been done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethesda, Bethsaida. Uh, Mark's account adds this, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus pulls them aside for rest. He realized and recognized human limitation. And he saw their weariness. And even with their enthusiasm and their exuberance of what they had seen happen, Jesus knew the serious consequences of fatigue. And so they shared this time together. I suppose Jesus is, is teaching them the significance of what they had seen and what they had done. In fact, a little later on in his ministry, Jesus sends out 70 others of his disciples on a similar mission trip, if you will. And Luke tells us that when they came and they returned and reported on all their efforts, Jesus had something very significant to say to them. Jump ahead to chapter 10, if you would. Chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall for, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. In his gospel account, Mark adds this, when they went ashore... Uh, well, let me back up, because we've got to go back to chapter 9 before we do that. Jesus never misses out on an opportunity to teach his disciples, and so what we see is this restful time doesn't last very long. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, here's what Mark adds at this point. He says, when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Look at the reason why Jesus has compassion on them. He says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. What an indictment on those who should have been shepherds of the people of Israel at that time. There's no spiritual care being provided. There's no watch being given over their souls. There's, there's, no, there's no spiritual truths that are be give, being given to feed these sheep. And what does Jesus do in response to the situation? He begins to teach them. He didn't get involved in some, get them involved in some humanitarian effort, though that's important. He didn't harangue those that should have been feeding the sheep but were failing to do their duty, though that certainly would have been justified. But he taught them. He taught them. Isn't that an amazing thing? Luke says that Jesus began speaking to them about the kingdom of God. He recognized their need for truth. 
And he began to impart truth to them, food for the soul. And maybe his teaching was along the lines of a lot of the themes that are very prominent in this time of his ministry, the kingdom of heaven, Uh, things about his relationship and unity with the Father, Uh, subjects like life and light and forgiveness. These are all very common, very important in his ministry at this time. So this is the lecture method. If we truly have compassion for people, we must impart spiritual truth to them. Without it, people are like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, the lecture was over. Now we go to the lab. Look at verse 12 of Luke chapter 9. Now the day began to wear away. The twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. So, Jesus, just try and picture this in your mind. Jesus is teaching away. Maybe the disciples are over to the side and they start looking at their watches. And they're thinking and maybe saying, if they're close to the Lord, Lord, it's getting late. It's getting late. We need to send these people away. Okay? By by the way, Lord, it's late for us too. You know, it's dinner time. Can we take a break? I mean, this is a pretty serious situation, folks. This is 5,000 men plus women plus children hanging around, no food to feed them. I mean, this, this has the beginnings of a riot out there potentially. But I don't think the disciples expected Jesus' reply. You feed them. Wouldn't you have loved to be able to see the look on their faces when Jesus said this to them? I mean, this is just too much. Now, John's account, chapter 6, tells us that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. So why, then, does he ask the impossible of them? Let me suggest two things. The first is a compassion check. Do you care? The second thing is a resource check. Are you able? And I personally think from the record that the disciples passed both checks. They got it. There was concern on their part, and there's also the realization that they don't have the resources to do that. They're going to have to come from somewhere else. And Jesus has them right where he wants them, acknowledging their need, but also acknowledging that they can't do it on their own. And enter stage left, Andrew, according to John's gospel. And he says, listen, there's a little boy over there. And he's got some bread, fish. Have you ever thought about this little guy? Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment, what he might have felt. Hey, there's a kid over there. He has what looks like a brown paper bag. Looks like a bag. Smells like a lunch bag. I mean, I can think of three reasons why this boy might not give out his lunch. First of all, we all tend towards self-preservation, towards self-protection, towards self-provision. This is mine. I need it. You can't have it. That would have been so natural for him. Second is, it's hard to look out for others when you're comfortable, when you've got enough for yourself, when you're taken care of. 
And, and the lack of need for ourselves often produces insensitivity to the needs of others. And last, and this one sort of glares at me, it just didn't make sense. I mean, it, it looks downright ridiculous. The little boy with five loaves and two fish. The biblical record does not indicate that the boy is blind. He can see the crowd of people that's out there. But how often do we respond to God's desire to use us this way? Lord, if I were only this kind of person, if I only had this personality, if I only had this ability and these gifts, Lord, I, I just I can't communicate eloquently. I, I just get all tongue-tied when I'm with people. You know, Lord, I, besides, I've got to take care of myself. I'm accumulating all this stuff that I need. Listen, God wants to minister through you exactly because of who you are. Who you are does not disqualify you. It qualifies you to be used by God in ministry. Let me remind you of what Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus. He tells them that their salvation is by grace alone. And then he adds this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a message for every believer. God has prepared good works for you to do. You are uniquely gifted and suited for whatever he wants to do through you. He wants to use you because you are you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek to improve our abilities, that we don't seek to, to increase the effectiveness of using our gifting, but recognize that God has placed you where you are and you as an individual that he might work through you. And remember, the outcome does not depend upon you. That's God's responsibility. You know, there's no pressure on this boy to pull off a miracle. That was Jesus' job, not his. He simply had to take what he had and give it to the master to use. And so look what Jesus does back in verse 14 of Luke 9. He said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to set before the crowd. Jesus takes, he blesses, he multiplies, and he gives. That, folks, is a divine sequence when human resources are put into God's hand. He takes it, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it, and then he takes it and he uses it in the lives of other people. Let's step aside for just a moment. Let's talk about some spiritual principles that I think we can draw from what we've just seen. The first thing is this. God is not limited by your limitedlessness, by your limitedness. You know, our problem comes when we survey the situation with our eyes only. We measure our resources only, and then we come to the conclusion that the result or outcome will be according to and within the scope of our gifts and our abilities and our means. But you see, that's not the right comparison. We shouldn't compare our resources with the need. We need to think about what God brings to bear in this. 
Second, God is looking for availability. The old country preacher, Vance Havner, used to say, you don't need to pray, Lord, use me. Uh, You get usable, the Lord will wear you out. Are we usable? Are we available? How do we go through the average day? Lord, I'm sorry, I'm too busy today, can't use me. Um, Lord, there are too many things going on. I'm sorry, call me tomorrow. Um, It's just absolutely amazing what God will do through you if you are just available, sensitive to God's desires and to the opportunities that he brings across your path. Third, God blesses what you have when it's given to him. I can't explain the effects of my life and ministry apart from the multiplying grace of God, and neither can you. Whatever it might be, a kind word spoken to someone who is discouraged, and God takes that word and he multiplies it and he uses it in the life of that person who really needed to hear. Or it might be an act of mercy. It might be a kind deed. It might be a word of encouragement, whatever. The effect is almost always greater than the effort of the act itself because God is in the middle of it and he takes those things and he uses them. God knows, and God uses our oftentimes very feeble efforts when we're simply available to him. And the last thing I want you to think about is that God wants to meet others' needs through you. God works in you that he might work through you. You know, you just might have the resources that God needs to help another person, to bless them. And so the disciples, they took the food and they began to distribute it to the crowds as they sat in their groups. Luke says this, they all ate and were satisfied. John, he reports the incident in this way. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. They didn't just get hors d'oeuvres, they got the whole buffet everything that they could eat. Now, I don't want you to miss this. It's in the end of verse 17. They all ate, were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. I love that. 12 baskets full. Why? One for each of those guys. What God is saying is, listen, guys, I'm going to take care of you. You too. Remember, Jesus focuses on these men. And Jesus is saying very clearly to them, listen, just trust me. And once again, Jesus is revealing his character more fully to these followers. Lab is over. Now it's time for the test. We have to go over to the Gospel of Mark uh, and see what happens after this miracle. Just turn back a book. Go to Mark chapter 6. Luke is the one gospel writer who does not include this incident. So let's just put it together in the timing of things uh, because I want to fill out the broader story. So here comes the test. John chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And then they run into a storm. Now Mark tells us that Jesus compelled them. That's our word in the language of the New Testament. He compelled them to get into the boat. 
Can you imagine when they hit the storm what these guys must have been thinking? You know, we obey the Lord, and look what happens. Maybe you've been there. You ever felt that way? You obey God as you understand that he wants you to obey him, and then all of a sudden you encounter problems and difficulties and situations. An old Mennonite preacher was once overheard praying one day. He said, Lord, it don't surprise me how few friends you have, seeing as how you treat the ones you do have. And maybe we feel that way some ways, you know? We're trying to be obedient. We're doing what God wants us to do. And it seems like all we do is we run into a storm. So how do you respond in times of storms in your life? Maybe financial setbacks, health problems, broken relationships, failure, disappointment. You know, anything that runs contrary to your expectations, to your desires, to your hopes. Now, I want you to see something, though. Look at verse 48 in Mark 6. And he saw, Jesus, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I mean, here's the thing. Jesus saw them struggling. Their efforts did not go unnoticed. God may sometimes be silent, but he's never unaware. He's never uncaring. Even in the midst of despair, God is aware of what you're going through, what you're facing. He understands. And if you doubt that, read of his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look what Jesus does on the cross for you when you're tempted to think he does not care. Did you notice something peculiar about verse... 48. It says that Jesus intended to pass them by, to let them struggle. Whoa, something wrong with this picture. Um, you see, I think we miss this. There's value in the process. So often our misguided way of thinking is just to put a band-aid on any difficulty, kiss the boo-boo, try to find a convenient out to any struggle. But we have to understand that God's got a bigger picture. And there's value sometimes in the process of struggling. And that's, I think, where we misunderstand the meaning of abundant life. Abundant life doesn't mean life's a bed of roses, no problems, no difficulties. It means that God is with us in the struggle. Um, and we need to know that. Let's go on in Mark's Gospel, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now, Matthew, in his gospel account, gives us more details, or as Paul Harvey would say, now for the rest of the story. And I wonder if partly the omission here of these details could be that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. Mark is the scribe who's writing Peter's account here. And since he's the primary actor in the drama that unfolds, maybe he was thought it strange to draw attention to himself. So go back another book earlier to Matthew chapter 14. And let's finish the story. Matthew 14. Look at verse 26 and 27. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now here's where the story unfolds. It gets a little interesting. I love Peter. Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I grew up with two older brothers who were very mean to me. We lived in a farmhouse and down, you had to go down the narrow steps there in the kitchen to go down to this dark, dank basement. And in that room, in that basement was also what we call, we call it the fruit room. It's where mom put the canned fruits and vegetables. So, um, you know, and they told me that there were ghosts that lived down in the basement, monsters. And, um, and you know, that just scarred me for life, I have to tell you. <laughs> And so mom tells me to go down and get a can of beans off the shelf. And so I start downstairs. And, and of course, I begin to talk to the non-existent monsters. I know you're really not there. You know, get out or I'm going to get you. And as soon as I reach the pantry, I grab the beans and I run up the stairs before the monsters can get me. Um, I think that's Peter here. I think this is a little bravado on Peter's part here. It's really a defense. You know, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, ask me to come out. Peter, come, gulp, you know. Now, I will give Peter credit. Bless his heart. He responds. He gets out of the boat. And what does he do? He begins to walk on the water. This is amazing. You know, can you picture the other disciples? You know, uh, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. You know, and now the disciples are, that a boy, Peter, you tell him. And then the Lord says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and says, well, way to go, Peter. I'm sticking your foot in your mouth again. Uh, you know, now what are you going to do? Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water. And the guys are going bananas in the boat. You know, this is amazing. Nathaniel, get the camera recorder. We got to get this on tape. I mean, it's an amazing thing that's happening. And then verse 30. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Three things happened to Peter. First, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to look at the circumstances around him. He loses eye contact with Jesus. Listen, when that happens, you only focus on the circumstances, and we lose perspective. The second thing is he begins to fear. When he takes his eyes off of Jesus, focuses on the situation before him, he becomes afraid. And the same thing happens to us. When our attention gets focused on our circumstances, which can be scary, very disturbing. Don't, don't you think it's easy to become afraid? I think we all know that experience. And then thirdly, he begins to sink. You ever had that feeling? You know, it begins with a misdirection of focus and then fear and then there's this sense of hopelessness. And Peter cries out, Lord, save me. What has he done? He simply turned his attention back to the Lord and off of his circumstances. Now, let's go on. Matthew 14, verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Did you notice when the wind stopped? When the storm stilled? It's after they got into the boat. What Jesus did is he delivered, he saved Peter through the wind and brought him into the boat. He delivers, he ministers, he helps through the storms in the midst. Well, Jesus has administered the pop quiz. 
And here's the grade. Mark chapter 6. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. A big, fat F. That's how they scored. That's their grade. They had the material from the lecture. They had the application from the lab. But when it came time for the pop quiz, they failed miserably. Now, really, let's not be too hard on them, shall we? Do we do much better? (laughs) We sit in church and we listen to God's word. We read the Bible during the week. We see his work in our lives and the lives around us. And then the quiz is served up in form of a storm of life. And we can fall apart. Why? Maybe it's because we haven't really understood the lessons. Maybe our hearts are hardened. Jesus' invitation stands for all time. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my load is is light. Jesus asked the disciples a question he asks us today. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the example of the disciples just because we see ourselves sometimes so much in theirs. Would you help us, Lord, not just to listen to the lecture? as we read your word, as we listen to your word taught, but would we listen with ears toward application, toward real grabbing of the truth of that, so that, Lord, when we get into the laboratory of life and the pop quiz comes its way, that we might be able to stand firm, trusting in you. But, Lord, thank you that when we do fail, and we do, that you're a God who's ready to restore and forgive And uh, Lord, may we never lose sight of that as well. So as we face whatever's out before us this week, Lord, would you give us the courage and the confidence to trust in you? And so as we begin a new week, we entrust ourselves to your care and ask that you would not only work in us, Lord, but that you would be pleased to work through us, to be encouragement to others, to meet others' needs as you give us that opportunity to the end that you would be honored In Christ's name I pray.